Welcome to the Entrepreneur's Trust podcast, dedicated to those taking the challenging road to bring positive ideas to society. My name is Asim Ishak. I'm an award-winning entrepreneur and inventor. I've worked with government, corporates, billionaires, and I've led startups to raise millions to commercialize their innovations. But I have seen way too many business failures. So I created the Entrepreneur's Trust to bring reality to the startup world and help protect innovators from failure. I work with entrepreneurs, coaching them to commercialize. I'm a consultant for growth, and I deliver failure-beating seminars with universities and accelerators. This podcast is my way of sharing great lessons from experts and leaders that I respect for our successful entrepreneurial journey. So sit back, relax, and listen in. Welcome to the Entrepreneur's Trust podcast. This is where we talk about the journey of being an entrepreneur, the ups and downs, the good, the bad, the amazing, the exciting, and the not so exciting. I think entrepreneurship is a life-changing route to achieve our ambition for those of us that embark on this journey. But the reality is it's a tough journey and over 60% of entrepreneurs and businesses fail in their first five years and 90% in the first 10 years. Now, couple that with being a black entrepreneur, couple that with coming from a background where entrepreneurship is not necessarily uh, the first career choice, couple that with being part of a community where you're not necessarily seen as people that the mainstream community might want to invest in. Couple that with all sorts of issues that society has, unconscious bias, open racism, lack of representation, lack of understanding. And it makes it even harder if you are a black entrepreneur. As an ethnic minority myself, I see the challenges that race has. But being a black entrepreneur is different from being an Asian entrepreneur because Asians are doing quite well. We have a really good social structure in entrepreneurship. And the black community uh, have faced many more challenges. There are very few black famous entrepreneurs in the United Kingdom. And there are very few black angel investors, hedge fund managers, VCs. So it makes it much more challenging for black entrepreneurs to get through the challenges of turning idea into commercialized projects and scalable revenue generating businesses. When an investor invests, they spend most of the time trying to get to know the person. And, uh, you know, we usually like people who are a bit like us. So if you're faced with an investor table that all white middle class and you're not white middle class, it does make it much more challenging. If you speak with a different accent, it makes it a lot more challenging. If your name is much more difficult to pronounce, it makes it much more challenging. That's just me talking from the outside. So in this podcast, I'd like to invite my guest today, who is a a credible, intelligent, and capable lady. She is the founder and director of Intelligest Limited. She's got a PhD in civil engineering, Uh, which involves artificial intelligence. She has got a master's in civil engineering, both from Harriet Watt University. She is a multi-award winning entrepreneur. She was involved in the European Institute of Innovation and Technology, the Food Accelerator Network, as well as accelerators with WIRA and the University of Edinburgh. 
She is involved with the Royal Academy of Engineering Enterprise. She is involved in the Royal Society of Edinburgh. I mean, the list goes on. On paper, this is a highly credible innovator. Her name is Dr. Ifenwe Rita Kanu. And Rita, shall I call you Ife? Because that's how I know you. Or would you like me to call you Dr. Kanu? Please do call me Ife. Very much my name. So call me Ife, you want. Ife, delighted to have you. We've known each other, actually, uh, for a, a few years. We were on Accelerator in Valencia, where we were talking. We, we had a lesson from Dr. Bill Orlett from MIT in how to raise and commercialize our innovation. And it's been an interesting journey for both of us. So, Ife, tell me about your IntelliJest innovation. Thank you very much, Asim, for inviting me to this podcast. It's my absolute pleasure. So IntelliDigest is a company I founded following my PhD um, in environmental engineering, civil engineering. And um, at IntelliDigest, our vision is we combining biotech and deep tech to solve global challenges. And that's because I love nature and I'm passionate about creating engineering solutions to solve environmental problems. The reason why I actually went to study engineering. So for me, it's more of how can we solve global environmental challenges? How can we be able to maximize the advances in technology using tech, using data to provide more sustainable solutions to our breaking and fragile economic and societal challenges. So at IntelliDigest, we developing a solution for both edible food waste and inedible food waste. Our technology helps to reduce or eliminate edible food waste. When I talk about edible food waste, I'm talking about, you know, leftover buffets that you can get in hotels and restaurants. I'm talking about like wonky food, things that people have rejected just because of the shapes. These are edible food that shouldn't go to waste. In edible food waste, we're talking about those banana peels and potato peels. And our solution also is able to take those kinds of food waste on-site at the earliest possible time, breaking it down into simple molecules that are then building block chemicals for other manufacturing processes. We want to ensure that as we boost the bioeconomy, we don't necessarily degrade soils, we don't necessarily take soils that should be used to grow human food and be growing industrial crops. When the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations has actually highlighted that over 1.3 billion tons of food is wasted globally, causing the global economy over $1 trillion with the potential for 3.3 gigatons of CO2 emission into the environment if it's not properly managed. We are trying to solve this problem. This is not just an environmental problem. It's a societal problem. It's an economic problem. And the earlier we can get food waste on site at the earliest possible time, compatible to useful materials, the better we can create more value from it. So you are taking large scale, the idea of, of anaerobic digestion, which takes food waste, which is done at a kind of industrial level, and you're taking them into, into kitchens and more kind of, not necessarily industrial kitchens, but places like restaurants and hotels and hospitals and university sized kitchens. Exactly. So those kitchens now become energy generating uh, plants through your technology. Exactly, Asim. So what we're doing is to take the black box from an anaerobic digester, which is actually, you know, 
breaking waste down and creating energy bar is controlled by microorganisms in a way that we using technology can actually control what that process does rather than the process telling us what it's doing based on the biological activities. So our process is able to proactively allow you know the use of technology to tell what should be an outcome from the breakdown of food waste because we are making the process more efficient by using specific sensors to understand the food waste composition, using enzymatic biocatalysis to break down the food waste, and also using specific uh, microbial fermentation microorganisms to convert it to bioenergy. But also, we're not just looking at bioenergy, we are also looking at biodegradable materials. So we, we, we have the option of either generating bioenergy or biodegradable materials from our process. So we also break down the food waste, creating new biodegradable materials that can be used for creating packaging materials that are completely biodegradable and also can be used to boost other aspects of bioeconomy, whether in using that for detergent manufacturing or cosmetics industry that is currently being um, supplied through industrial crops. So does this system work? Yes, it works. We have it. Sorry, I was going to ask, do you have a working prototype? Yes, we have a process developed in the lab, um, which we have patented uh, both uh, in Europe and the USA. So uh, we, we have a working process. We currently are raising investment to build it into a single unit that we can then take into the businesses to start using it. And how long do you think it will be before you've got actually a working machine that you are ready to sell? If we're able to raise investment today, between the next six and nine months, we will have a working product ready to go into the hotels and restaurants. Tell me, what do your family think about the work that you're doing? Well, uh, my family think is something that really has a huge impact um, on the society. And for me, that is all that matters to me. The fact that what I'm doing is going to have a huge impact on the society. It's going to solve a huge global environmental problem. And I think that's really something that my family um, see in what I'm doing. And that's why they've been so supportive um, through the journey, because it's quite a challenging one. It definitely is. I mean, being an inventor is one thing, but being an environmental technology inventor is quite difficult because it takes a lot longer to turn an idea into revenue generation. So if you tell me about your journey to Harriet Watt, I mean, you graduated from University in Nigeria. So what got you thinking, I want to be an engineer, firstly, and then secondly, what what made you come over to, to Scotland? Yeah, I think that's an interesting question. I think for me, um, I love nature and I'm passionate, really passionate about creating engineering solutions. And more importantly for me now is how those engineering solutions could help to solve environmental problems. So uh, when I was very young, um, when I was in primary school, I had to write an essay about what I want to be in the future. And um, because I had this professor who was living close by me, who is a geologist, and I, I love the way he moves around with equipment and, you know, go to test some rocks and do some experiments. I just love, you know, what he was doing. And I, I remember I wrote in, in, in that particular essay that I want to be a geologist. Um, luckily for me, my, my dad used to keep record of most of our books during school. So I still have a copy of that in my file in my house. <laughs> so each time I go back home, I still go through it and I kind of remind myself, at that very early stage, I decided I want to be, you know, something 
product or something that um, engages with the environment. So I told my parents about that when I was about to enter the university and they felt that I, I would do better being a medical doctor. And um, we had a, a bit of discussions over that for some time, you know, and my personal tutor had to come in in a meeting together before, you know, he convinced them that because I'm good working biology, physics, math, chemistry, I should be allowed to choose what I want to do. And the next option was that it's best for me to do chemical engineering. If, if for any reason I'm, <laughs> I decide to do a kind of a practical thing, that chemical engineering is what is most close to what I should do. So I did submit my application for chemical engineering and electrical engineering. But as with me have it, I saw my name published for civil engineering as a course, which I I accepted with the hope that in the next year I'm going to change to chemical engineering. As fate may have it, I enjoyed civil engineering. And at the end of the day, as at the time in Nigeria, I felt that was the only engineering profession that was really delivering engineering, if you want to say it that way. For me, it was the only profession at that time in Nigeria that you actually function as an engineer because as a civil engineer, you have to design the buildings, you have to design the bridges, and you execute it. Uh, back then in Nigeria, other engineers are more like, they do more like technical work, like they don't really design things uh, per se from the fundamentals. So I took it on me that this is really something I want to do because I want to design things, I want to build it, and I want to see it working. So that's how I started off and um, I continued in civil engineering and absolutely enjoyed it, um, graduated and got my first job in a dredging company. And that completely changed my perception. For me, uh, my first degree, I did um, steel structures and reinforced concrete structures. And when you think about it, what I'm doing today is completely... You're building bridges and roads and now you're, you're in a kitchen. Exactly. <laughs> Microengineering. Yeah. So what got you to come over to Scotland then? Yeah, so for me, um, working at a dredging company opened my eyes to environmental issues. And that was when the hype around sustainability, you know, as a buzzword was coming up. So I picked interest in that. I just, I just hate waste, like seeing waste around me. And I just wanted to be able to solve that problem of, you know, waste. Like, I just don't want it. And I took it on me and I said, this is something I want to do. And um, in terms of choosing Scotland as a place to study, when I decided to do my master's, my, my husband um, have some links with Scotland because of the sector he works in. So you know, we felt this is a good place to start from. And when I checked the, the ranking of schools um, in the UK, I think Heratwat was doing very well in uh, environmental engineering and civil engineering. So I felt it was the right place to be. So I applied and I got admission to do environmental civil environmental engineering at Heratwat University. I finished my master's with a distinction and I got a scholarship to do my PhD. And while I was doing my master's, my research topic was on retrofitting artificial sludge for energy efficiency with one of the large industrial um, waste treatment companies in the UK. So I witnessed firsthand the challenges they have with waste, um, both anaerobic digesters, uh, wastewater, and you know other waste that we generate as human and we don't really know how people work so hard to solve and manage them 
Sora, I thought this is something technology can solve. This is something we can work together to provide solution for. And it's just insane how people are exposed to very hazardous working conditions because they have to manage these waste streams. So, you know, I, I did apply to do my PhD um, looking at um, use of advanced biological investigation and um about investigations such as mixed analysis and also artificial intelligence, optimized anaerobic processes. And that's what I did um, through my PhD. And following that, I had to come up with IntelliDigest to actually solve that problem. So you, you've used your, your PhD to actually come up with the innovation that you, you turned into a business. For the past three years now, you've actually been working on your IntelliDigest business and actually turning it into a product that you can then sell. So what was what was the journey like from leaving university to actually saying this is the product now and this is my invention and I want to take this forward? How's that been for you? It's been quite an interesting journey for me. And you know, the fact that my entrepreneurial journey was more incidental than planned in the sense that we, my vision was to be able to work with organizations after my PhD, such as you know. World Bank or United Nations to profile solutions to most of the waste challenges. But I think part of my work during the university PhD days was to carry out um, engaging training, so entrepreneurial training. You have been through uh, more than a few accelerators. So what was the the jump from being um, a scientist to an entrepreneur? I think that's a very interesting question. So the journey from being a scientist to an entrepreneur has been quite interesting. What do you mean by interesting? Because there is a big pause there when you say that. I mean, that, that's, not, that's not like a TV film is interesting. What does it actually mean <laughs> to you when you say interesting? Has it been a joyful journey? Has it been a pleasant journey? Has it been an exciting journey? To be frank, um, it's been quite exciting because then you're seeing your academic work being turned to a commercial solution that then has a huge impact on the society. What I'm asking, if it is, sure you've enjoyed the journey of actually saying, I invented this thing, it works in the lab, and I think there's a business opportunity. And you've actually been able to raise some bits of funding that help you progress. So tell us about the funding that you have raised so far. Yep. So most of the funding I've raised has been through the rest of Edinburgh, Royal Academy of Engineering, and also the Climate Kick. So give us some numbers. So on the average, we've raised about £250,000. That's fantastic. I mean, that's not a small amount of funding. And well done to you for, for getting through the process, getting those grants and those funds together. So what was it like when you got your first grant check or your grant offer? My first grant offer was from Climate Kick. So uh, it was really exciting. Um, And also knowing that that is meant for you to deliver something and be accountable for it. It was also challenging because you have to do it and do it properly. So it was great. And then after that, you got, what was your next tranche of funding? So the next funding we got was with Royal Society of Edinburgh Enterprise Fellowship, which is co-funded by Scottish Enterprise. And um, that funding was meant to help academic researchers turn into entrepreneurs. And that funding is focused on leadership development to help academic researchers understand the nitty-gritty of actually turning their academic research into solutions that can be used by 
other people uh, as a, on, a, on a commercial scale. So that was very useful for me to kind of transition from being an academic researcher to actually move into the entrepreneurial world. And then did you get some funding after that as well? I want to give credit to those people that gave you funding. I want, I want to mention them. Yes, um, I mean, I've got some other funding from Scottish Enterprise too, which is more on the innovation funding. And also I've got funding from Royal Academy of Engineering Enterprise Fellowship, which is also building on you know, the opportunities for an academic researcher to transit from academic world into the entrepreneurial world. So I found both um, fellowships very helpful for me in my transition from academic world into the entrepreneurial world. So that's fantastic to see those little lumps of funding coming through and coming to the business and also support you in your growth and your development as a CEO and a leader of a business that has a mission-driven approach and has the opportunity to make a big difference. So now you're transitioning from you know an, a researcher into an entrepreneur. So the next step is actually raising hard capital, cash from investors rather than grants. So what's it been like for you in your journey to raise investment capital from people who want an, a, a cash return from your business? Yeah, I think that is really an interesting question too. Um, I think for me, it's been a very tough journey to actually raise capital at the moment to drive the business forward. I mean, the fact that we have a technology that is already developed from a PhD work and also we have a patented technology. We have a patent both in Europe and the USA, and we also have, you know, trademark registrations. We we have paid trials from multinational companies wanting to use our solution. We have a network of people we've built through participation in different accelerators who are working with us, and it's still very difficult for to convince investors to invest. Um, in IntelliDigest uh, is, is mind-boggling and is, is challenging to explain. We are both, uh, the process that we use for, for fundraising and innovation is the MIT Discipline Entrepreneurship Process, which is, involves 24 specific steps. It's very clear, it's very precise, and it's a very logical approach. And you have followed it you know, to the letter almost. You've done everything you should have done. You've got proof points you validated it, you know, you've got those people that should know better saying yes, and they've tried it and they're interested in it and they want to go forward with you. So, I mean, I have worked with other project developers that have done far less than you, that have not got as many proof points as you and have raised much, 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 much more money than you have. So what do you think has been the real challenge for you in raising investment? What kind of reasons are people saying no? I think um, I have like uh, reports that shows or feedback that keeps saying, we want to see you having a product in the market. We want to see at least 10 users in the market before we can invest. So those are the kind of feedback I get. And those people are not investors. What they are are quasi-bank. Those guys are lazy people. 
They shouldn't be called investors, as far as I'm concerned. They should just go back and go work in a bank because investment is about taking risk. If you've got 10 paying customers, then why the hell do I need an investor? What's the purpose of me sitting in front of you and calling you investor? I may as well sit in front of a banker who's at least honest enough to say, look, I'll loan you the money, but you're going to have to pay it back instead of going to somebody who overvalues himself who cares too much about uh, his title and his ego or her ego is boosted by the fact they sit on cash. I can say all of this because I'm not raising investment right now. And you don't have to say this. I'm going to be very honest. Investors are out to kiss frogs. I hope, and they will kiss as many frogs as possible, hoping one turns into a prince or princess. But there are too many people that call themselves investors, especially for early stage businesses that are not investors. They're looking for a safe bet. If they want to go get a safe bet, they should just go buy a house, put some money in premium bonds or invest in the stock market. But they shouldn't call themselves investors. They should not be allowed to stand in front of people like articulate, intelligent, have done their work, have done their research, have been validated. So how many black investors have you sat in front of? None. None. And how many years have you been raising investment? Well, we are three years plus now as a company. So in three years, you haven't sat in front of one black investor. And that has an impact. How many Asian investors have you sat in front of? At least about two. At least about two. Well, that's a little bit better. But they said no as well. Now, let me deliberately be very provocative. Black Lives Matter, George Floyd. We've seen it in the news. And and if you haven't watched the news, you, you you haven't heard about it. But if you've watched the news over the past month or so, then... The issue of the disparity of black people is now the forefront of politicians' minds and society's minds. And for me, it's a great opportunity to actually call out the obvious, which is that racism is still existing. In the UK, it's a very kind of subtle form of racism sometimes, especially in the circles that we're in, which is, you know, intelligent, polite company, you know, ambitious people that have a a purpose-driven but unconscious bias is definitely a big issue for us. I wonder to what extent have you seen or heard these issues in your career? So, yeah, thank you very much, Asim, for raising that. But I think one thing I want to draw you to is the fact that, first of all, we need to correct some fundamental issues. Please correct me. Stemming from the word black so if you should search, you know, the meaning of black, I mean, if you just go to Google or go to Cambridge University and search the meaning of black, now you're going to see different definitions. One is black is a very darkest color owing to the absence of all complete absorption of light, the opposite of white, right? Yeah. yeah. Black to belong is belonging to or denoting any human group having dark colored skin, especially of African or Australian Aboriginal ancestry. Black color pigments. A member of dark-skinned people, especially one of African or Asian Aboriginal ancestry, making something black, especially with polish. Now, refuse to handle goods, undertake or have dealings with a person or business as a way of taking industrial action. That is under the vision of black, but dated in British. And also, when you look at black, black also has another meaning of um, Negro. So, what does it what does it mean to you that they're the written definitions but what does it mean to you to be so i think what i'm trying to say here is that those definitions especially when it comes to the characteristics of what black means Mm -hmm. does not resonate rightly of you know wanting to say 
I'm actually a black entrepreneur or um, a black person. I prefer to call myself a black pigmented or a black colored person rather than to say I am a black person because when you define black as being full of gloom or misery, very depressed, or you define black as being tragic or disastrous event causing despair or pessimism, it doesn't resonate with me. It's not me. I definitely agree. I mean, every time I've spoken to you, you have a big smile on your face. You're very optimistic. And you, you know, you must be optimistic because you've been working on your own project for three years. So I believe you are an optimistic person. So, but there are other people's definitions of black. And that is why I wouldn't want to relate very much with Black Lives Matter because it doesn't define who black people are, Mm -hmm. right? It doesn't tell of who black people are because it's showing here from the definition in dental characteristics that it means full of anger or hatred, very evil or wicked, you know, denoting a covert military process. And this is a standard dictionary definition, which doesn't resonate with me and doesn't define who black people are. And that is why personally, I do not really want to associate with Black Lives Matter. I believe that people with black skin color lives matter. And I want these definitions, anybody hearing this podcast, to understand that these definitions need to change because these are fundamental things, little things that matters because people read these and the more people read it in the future, the more they associate with black and the more you have these challenges in the future. Sorry to interrupt. Don't you think that the Black Lives Matter campaign as a social movement is saying that, you know, we don't want to be defined by this dictionary definition. We don't want to be defined by somebody in the 18th century, the 19th century, who who first wrote this definition and is still stuck in the dictionary. We want to be defined by who we are now and what we want out of life. And we are standing up for ourselves as a community, as a, a concept, as a group of people that want equal rights and equal treatment in the world. For me, it's more like, you know, accepting the fact that you are what is still called is something I wouldn't want to be part of. I want this to be changed before I can accept, okay, you can then call me black. And I think, you know, looking at going to the basis and the biology of what color is, you find out that both black and white lies almost in the same, you know, area of whether you're talking about light as black being absorbing all light and light being that there's no more color or whether you're talking about pigments whereby you can make black color with different colors or white whereby you don't even have any other pigment that you can combine to make white. If we're talking about skin color, I mean, in my household, okay, I got four kids, me and my wife, we're all actually different color. And, I, and I've met people from African-Arabian backgrounds that are actually lighter than me. And I met people that are darker than me. But people from Afro-Caribbean descent are treated differently from, from people that are Asian descent. Yeah, And, and sometimes we're, treated, we're all treated the same. It boils down to something we're saying. There's a confusion here. And, and that's why for me, you know, it's good that people are promoting and protesting the Black Lives Matter issue. But what I'm saying, there's fundamental definition around black that I wouldn't want to associate with. It's good that we need to call out you know, differences or, you know, if there's injustice anywhere, it's a threat to justice everywhere. So we need to really call out these issues. And it's not just about saying it's all about the Black 
Lives Matter or you know Black People Matter. It's all about the fact that there's a fundamental social societal failure that needs to be addressed, right? And that's what I'm trying to say here. So for me, if you're asking me the question about Black Lives Matter and what I think about it, what I'll tell you is this: there is a fundamental societal failure. Things are not working, and we as individuals have failed ourselves in our own intelligence. We are supposed to be developing emotional, um, social intelligence, and not just developing intellectual intelligence, but also like technical intelligence, but also developing social and emotional intelligence. And that is critical for us to be able to manage and work with others. And I will try to, you know, look at these from the Equality Act of 2010. Now, if you go to the Equality and Human Rights Commission website, you will see the Equality Act. You will see also those uh, protected characteristics that are covered by Equality Act. But then one thing you will say is that there are some elements of the Equality Act which is yet to come into effect, and there are some of them which will not be coming into force. Now, this Equality Act was developed by think tanks who had looked at all the challenges the society has got, who has looked at all the societal failures and came up with this Equality Act. Now, those two key ones that will not be taken forward is dual discrimination and socioeconomic inequalities under the public sector equality duty. What does this mean? That government means, means that government is promoting socioeconomic inequality. And this is a fundamental issue around, you know, whether investment is going to the Black, you know, community or the ethnic minority communities. If we are not able to address our social inequalities, then we're not addressing this whole thing, whether it's coming from a disabled person or it's coming from a BAME person or it's coming from the gender differences we are not addressing the problem. Now, there's a report in 2010 from the European Commission that's, you know, they're trying to answer the intriguing question about why there are social inequalities in the rise in the world, especially in Europe. And, you know, one what, what of the key things coming out is the fact that the, the European Commission needs to fight social economic inequalities while at the same time, that they can't fight social economic inequalities while at the same time sticking to the same old models of growth and not daring to be politically bold enough to accept the need for change. I, I congratulate you for focusing on others. I congratulate you for focusing on the importance of social fairness in the world. I congratulate you for, for seeing beyond your own issue. I think you are clearly a person that cares beyond your own situation and your own community's needs. I just wish that more people who should know better would care about others and take the time and trouble to reach out and take an interest in people beyond what they see of them. I congratulate you for understanding the nuances of this issue that we're facing. But for me, I want to go back to the point that before this, this issue was in the fore and in, in, in the news and in the media, black people were, were suffering silently and, and sometimes they weren't suffering silently uh, but when we saw a, a person die in front of us on tv screens eight minutes 46 seconds for me i tell you what it did for me it for me it said now we should call out people who distinguish from one another for characteristics such as race and we should call it out and we should deem it unacceptable and I have, you know, a person of color 
I have never really sought to use race as a, an issue. I'm not political, you know. So I kind of didn't really bring out my race in any great discussion, any great length. You know, people ask you what, what you do, how to do this and all that stuff. But now, you know, I, I think when I see people treating me differently, badly, I'm going to call it out. And I, I think we've got license to do that. And for me, the re- one of the reasons that you have not been invested in is because they invest in, in people and in investors, probably far too many investors focus on the person. And if they don't understand the person, they struggle to find a desire, a motivation to invest in their project. So whilst you are very good and kind enough not to um, focus on those issues, and i tell you where the distinction is, because all, for all the grants that you've applied for, you probably applied for more than you, you've got. The, ones that, the funding that you have received has been soft money. The money that you haven't got is the hard money, okay? So on paper, when they assess you on paper, you get your funding. But when they assess you as a person, as an investable proposition, as an entrepreneur, as a leader, and you're pitching in person, you're not getting invested. So, so what's that about? For me, I think for the investors that are missing on investing in me, I think they're not just seeing the future. So, and um, I think I'm going to meet the right investor who is going to see the future and see what I'm aiming for and be able to invest in me. I totally believe that. And I hope and definitely want that for you. I want you to find that investor. You know, I think the mission that you've embarked on is an amazing thing. And I think it's there's so much growth opportunity in what you're trying to do. Because people eat food and therefore people generate food waste. So if, you can, if you've got a solution for that, there's definitely a need for that. And it's really, I want to share this goodness to you is that we are currently at IntelliDigest, we are diversifying, we are going into consulting, we are taking what we have and being able to give it to people, not just as a technological product, but in different ways, which will mean that we are moving on and we are establishing ourselves as the go-to marketplace for solving the food waste problem and global challenges around food waste and we know that in the near future most investors are going to come knocking on our door and by then we may not need their investment because we're moving on and i think for me i believe in what i'm doing and i believe in the future and i believe on the impact it's going to have on people but for me in this discussion is more on how can we not just look at this particular sector of the societal failure we have and dwell on it, but rather looking at the whole challenges we're having as a society, knowing that none of this particular issue is going to stand on its own and be solved on its own. These issues are rooted on institutional biases. Until we're able to tackle those institutional biases, then we're never going to tackle any one of those problems. So we need to really look into this holistically It's not about black, it's not about gender, it's not about female or male, it's not about black or white, it's not about disability or non-disability. It's the fact that we human beings, we build ourselves. We fail to realize that we are intelligent beings and we should be social and emotional intelligent beings. If we become so poor in our intelligence, then we have to wake up. It's a wake up call for people. Like you wake up and tell yourself, I want to become more intelligent. I want to be able to reason and talk to other people as people, as human, right? So it's not about black or minority or anything. It's about people being less intelligent and the need for people to become more intelligent. 
in the future. And that's the only way we can solve our societal problem. Whether you're talking about climate change issues, people because of their capitalist nature, because they're making, uh, getting benefits from existing, you know, facilities or existing economic atmosphere and don't want to see that that particular economic benefit they're getting is having a detrimental effect on the economy and on the society in terms of the environment and don't want to put in solutions that will solve that, that is human failure. Whether you're looking at it in terms of gender, female or male, that is human failure. And unless we look at that and solve those um, inbuilt biases in us as human beings, then there is no point talking about black or white or you know green or yellow, right? That's my own standing. So how do we do that? I mean, you're in your children's study room, so you're investing in your children's capability and growth, as well as, you know, what you're trying to do. And education is part of the answer. But how do we educate those that don't necessarily have black friends or you know don't necessarily hang around or in their circles with people of different colors and different races how do we educate those people it's so simple asking that's what i'm saying just be intelligent be emotionally and socially intelligent so uh, irrespective of whether you're talking to a dog you know you know that this is a dog and i need to be kind to this dog like that's just normal like you need to be kind to a dog right and when you're talking to whether it's a black or white or green person that person is human. You need to talk to the person. Use your emotional intelligence. Use your social intelligence and relate to people and see, see the beauty in them, see the goodness in them and know their color. See the beauty in them and know their sex, whether female or male. See, see the capability in them and the world would be a better place. So it's not about dwelling on black or white or green or female or male or disability or non-disability. It's about just seeing people as people, like human. It's about exploiting our intelligence as human. We're not robots, right? We're not just technically intelligent. We're human. That makes us different from robots. And the more we try to explore that and use that now as humans, the better we become in relating with each other. So you don't see somebody as black. You see that person as him, her, you, who you are, and what you can contribute to the society. And then, you know, we can then appreciate each other. And then probably we don't have to say Great Britain or make America great again, because you just want everybody to be great, right? Yeah, yeah, that's true. For somebody who has a very hard education in the hard sciences, it's a very, very soft point you make, and it's a very good point that you make, that we should just treat people as beings. And I think for me, one of the big indicators of how I treat people is the size of their smile. The bigger their smile, the more you want to engage with them. <laughs> yes. And if it has one, one big, huge smile as well. And it makes a difference, doesn't it? Yeah, that's a very, very soft suggestion. And I think it makes perfect sense. Although I think for me, I know I've been treated better by people that have somehow, somewhere got a connection with another ethnic minority. The investments I've raised, projects I've got support in, there's always been somebody who has not seen my colour and because they haven't got a close relationship with people of colour. And it, it shows to me where people have engaged with people from a diverse community. They're actually able to connect with more people from a diverse background. And that's because those people, they were able to trigger their emotional and social intelligence and they were able to dampen their bias, right? So they were able to manage themselves as human, not as robots, right? So because they were able to do that, then they seem beyond the color of the person was seeing the content of the person. 
Yeah, I think that's a really good point and so well made as well. And actually a real surprise for me that we've kind of taken this direction in the conversation. So thank you very much for that. I really appreciate that. So going back to where you're going heading in the future, what are the, the next steps in the growth of your business? You talked about moving into consulting and being the go-to people in this food waste challenge that we're all facing. What are your plans? I mean, we're in pandemic right now. We're just kind of coming out of it. So what are the future plans for your business? Yeah, Asim is, is big, is global, is the ability to have a huge impact in society around food waste, around how you manage our supply chain. I think all the critical things that have come out within this COVID-19 is that existing system infrastructure of supply chain is not really working. We need to develop supply chains that work for businesses in the future. And this is what we want to do. We want to be able to create infrastructure, be able to support businesses around that, you know, involving agri-tech, food tech, food tech sector to have a better understanding of how they can manage their supply chain, how they can eliminate food waste in their supply chain, and how inedible food waste or unavoidable food waste can actually be converted into new materials that will boost the bioeconomy. So what we're talking about here is being able to engage widely with the wider society boards on a global scale, whether in America or in Europe or Africa or Asia, get that message across to farmers, get that message across to and, you know, most people, um, both the food retailers, food um, manufacturers, anyone along the food supply chain. The importance of how using technology, using data-driven mechanics such as um, blockchain can also help them to manage their supply chain, manage the movement of food and be able to eliminate food waste. And wherever the food waste is you know, unavoidable, or inedible, being able to convert that into high-value materials that can boost the bioeconomy. That's a compelling proposition for people who are, you know, motivated to invest in, in cleaner solutions. You've got something unique, bloody works, you know, and you've got a, a bunch of solutions around it that allow you to be scalable. So come on, investors. You should be beating down if it's door to invest in her projects. It takes an awful lot of energy, ambition, and perseverance to get to the stages you have, and then to carry on with it. So you're definitely a person that people should be investing in. You're an investable proposition because you've proven and validated, and you've got a revenue model. So a uh, you know, good investor should see the potential in you and see the value in, in supporting you and adding, building your team and helping to realize the ambition for your technology. So I certainly hope, uh, Dr. Ghanem, that you get the investment that you've been so working towards and that, you know, the United Kingdom to begin with starts to see the benefit of the Intelligest projects and products in many, many kitchens around the country. Thank you very much, Asim. I think in the future, people should be looking out for Intelligest Digest Venture because we will be investing and we will not be investing um, with the current model. We'll be investing as humans. We'll be investing with, with social and emotional intelligence. Um, driving economy in places that people never thought there could be huge uh, economic drive there. So definitely people should look out for IntelliDigest Venture in the future because we're coming. You've got my support. We need angel investors, tech invest investors like you. So prove the stuff that you have invented work, make your millions and then get investing in the future. So a real pleasure to have you. I'm going to put uh, Ife's contact details in the show notes. If you want to get in touch with her, please find her. 
uh, get in touch, ask her to have a conversation, get her to pitch and, um, you know, put an offer to Ify that she can't resist because this lady is going places. Dr. Ify Kanu, CEO of Intelligest, thank you very much for being in today's uh, Entrepreneurs Trust podcast. Thank you so much, Asim. It's been a pleasure. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast as much as I did. Thank you for sharing your time with us. Please let me know what you think through the feedback options. If you have any questions, please do get in touch. Until next time, this is Asim Ishak from the Entrepreneurs Trust podcast. Goodbye, take care, and stay really, really well.